to mixture and error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, Christ always hath had and ever shall have a kingdom in this world, to the end thereof of such as believe in him and make profession on his name. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, we do thank you for this time we have this morning. Lord, I pray now that you will guide our hearts, give us wisdom and discernment through the power of the Holy Spirit, and may Christ be glorified throughout this study. May we look this morning at the great privilege that it is to be, to be part of a local church and be part of the universal church as a whole as well. And what a great joy it is. And Lord, may we take these words that we read, not only in the confession this morning, but in the scriptures that we will reference, that we will take them in the proper spirit, and that we will certainly use them to, to grow and to gain in our knowledge and truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, we praise you, and it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. So we deal with this subject this morning of this continuance or this perpetuity of the church. The confession writers made mention and took notice of something that would be very, very important, not only for them to recognize in the days in which the confession was written, but would also be important for us. It is a very strong statement that they begin this paragraph with. It mentions the purest churches. Now, I don't think there's anyone here today that does not want to be part of a pure church. I don't think there's anyone that would say, we, we want to be part of a corrupt church. We want to be part of a polluted church. We want to be part of a church that doesn't do things right. But the reality is, is there are churches that we would call pure churches. And yet the confession writers said very clearly that the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. Uh, that means that there could come a time when even the purest, even the church which stands the strongest, the church that is most sound in doctrine, the church that is seemingly doing everything proper, is subject or can be infiltrated by mixture and error. In other words, something can go wrong. Uh, but there's also the reality that when we think about these churches, the subject to mixture and error, it says that this can become so bad that some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Uh, that is a frightening thought to consider, that a church that was once a pure church is now degenerated because of error that was in or was not dealt with, it degenerated to a point where it could no longer be called a church, but now it has become what's referred to as a synagogue of Satan. And much, many times you hear me say this, one of my favorite words in scripture is the word nevertheless, because they, in the confession, they wrote that word, nevertheless, ties these two great truths together. Even though the purest churches are subject to this error, even though this could happen to where the purest churches could degenerate so badly that they would become called the synagogue of Satan, nevertheless, Christ always has had and ever shall have a kingdom in this world. He will always have a kingdom. He will always have a church. He will always have a remnant. He will always have people who have not bowed the knee to Baal, so to speak to the end thereof. That means that there will always be a church of Jesus Christ. 
There will always be a remnant. There will always be people who are standing, those who believe in him and make profession on his name. So we can take comfort in that today. We can take comfort in knowing that he will always have a church. Now here's the frightening part. There is no guarantee. There is no guarantee that this local church at some point in time could not possibly degenerate to so far that it would no longer be called a church of Christ. Now that would be unthinkable to us, and I think that's probably the saddest thing we could hear today to consider that one day, due to error, that this church would no longer be standing for that which is pure and that which is true. But the idea that just existing as a church guarantees its survival as a one local church, for example, no matter what it does, is not accurate. There are times and throughout history where God himself has removed the lampstand. He has taken the church out. He has removed churches. He has said, you are no longer one of mine. Not every church that closes should have remained open. Churches are closing at an alarming rate across the country. And in some cases, churches should have closed because they cease to be a church. They cease to be something that was now this pure church. So there really are two main points we need to consider this morning, among some other things. But first of all, we need to consider that individual churches, such as the local churches, may have unregenerate members. It is possible. It is actually more than possible. It is likely that within even the purest churches across this nation, there are unregenerate church members. They are, there are people who are on church rolls, who have never truly repented of their sins. They've never believed on Christ alone. They are unregenerate, but they are on a church roll. That has happened and will continue to happen. With regard to these individual churches with unregenerate members, this opens up the door that some churches, due to this unregenerate membership, may even become corrupt and error allowed to enter in. There are a couple examples we're going to look at this morning, Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, and then also 1 Corinthians 5. We'll kind of examine that in just a few moments. Now, of course, this does not mean, because there are unregenerate members in churches, it does not mean that individual believers can lose their salvation. We spent an entire uh, month and a half on chapter 17 that dealt with, in our confession, that dealt with that you cannot lose your salvation. We are not talking about regenerated people becoming unregenerate. We're talking about unregenerate church members right now that are on membership roles. They are in churches. And we automatically assume that because they're in a church, they must be God-fearing, Christ-believing people. That is not always the case. So even the purest churches, the confession writer said, are subject to this. We cannot rest on purity. You cannot just say, because we are pure, we'll never have to worry about this happening. The reality is, is the confession writers understood that this could be a possibility. So an unregenerate membership... Uh, would lead to churches being infiltrated by unbelievers who initially give the appearance of being true disciples. Folks, it is not difficult to fool somebody into believing and thinking that you are regenerate. It's not hard to do. It can be done. It has been done. Sadly, it's done many, many times. People appear to be followers. They appear to want to be disciples of Christ. But at the heart of what they're actually doing is not to edify the church, but they are there to break the church down. 
So we have to keep in mind that these things can happen. Second main point we're going to deal with this morning, and this goes along with that nevertheless that I gave you. Secondly, Christ has promised that his church will prevail against all the attacks of the evil one. There will always be a representative or a remnant of the church here on earth. No matter what the world tries to do, the true church on this earth will never fully be wiped out. He has promised that he will remain until the end. Scripture teaches us that his church will remain until the end. It's not going to come to an end. It is going to remain. But we do need to keep in mind that there are the realities that even though the attacks and we will prevail against them, it does not mean that the churches themselves will not be infiltrated and it does not mean that churches will not ultimately be closed. So I want to take these phrases apart this morning. But first of all, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're not going to do a full exposition of this text this morning. We're just going to read through part of this. And we do see an example, and this is an extreme example, but I don't think it's as extreme as what we tend to read it. 1 Corinthians 5 always comes across as something uh, that that would never happen into our, uh, happen in our day. It, it comes across as, well, you know, that was the church at Corinth, and the church at Corinth was filled with problems. The church at Corinth had issues. There were aspects of the church at Corinth that even to this day uh, would make some of the churches in our day and age ashamed. The church at Corinth was not totally a mess from top to bottom, but there's issues along the way, and this was one of those issues. A scandalous sin had entered into the church, and that scandal was not being dealt with. And because it was not being dealt with, we see that God himself, through the scripture, says that immediate swift and extreme action must be taken without regard for the, f- the feelings of people. In other words, it is the feelings that will keep us from making the right decisions to protect the purity of the church. We're afraid of hurting people's feelings. Now, I'm not talking about hurting people's feelings intentionally, but if you have a scandal like was going on in church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's words were, you need to deal with that swiftly, and I am, I am saddened that you're not dealing with this. So we see there in verse, verse 1 of that chapter, Paul says, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he, hath, he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. He says, not only are you not concerned about this, you're letting him stay. You're not taking care of it. You're not removing it. You know it's there. It's commonly reported that this is a scandal. And folks, we're talking about something that this was, this would be like walking into the church this morning and we would all know about it. Every one of us would know this was happening. And he just said, they said, you're puffed up about it. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he, he, he speaks to them as believers. If Paul didn't believe that there were actual believers in the church at Corinth, he would not have greeted them in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was telling them that you are, in fact, regenerate people. But you're allowing something inside of the church and you're not dealing with it. 
So he greets them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is a direct, this is a direct context to the person who's guilty of this sin. And yes, this is what the church often refers to as excommunication or removal. He said, this is what should be happening. Now, the warning is so strong is because of what the confession writers were even talking about in this paragraph. The purest churches are subject to mixture and error. They are subject to the reality that this can happen. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened for even Christ our Passover sacrifice for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle, he's referring to other letters, not to company with fornicators. He's, he's, he, he's dealt with this. He said, I've, we've talked about this before. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then ye must needs go out of the world. Look, Paul was not saying, go out there and pass judgment on the world. Don't go out there and worry about necessarily what the church is doing outside of the church. But inside the church, you better believe you should be dealing with, in, inside this congregation, you should be dealing with this sin. Look, you, you could go out and we could judge the world and all of its sins. And the catalog of sins is endless, Right? Paul is making this very clear mark. He says, listen, we are to judge those who are within. He said, but in order to judge the sins of the world, you'd have to go out into the world. But he says, but now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such a one, know not to eat. And then Paul makes it clear. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within. Paul really puts it right where we are. He says, is it really our job, and I'm going to put this in layman's terms, is it really our job to judge the world? Or is it our job to judge within the church? Within the church. Look, I could get involved in judging a whole lot of other local churches all over this nation. And Lord knows there are thousands of things going on in local churches. Scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal. But you know what we have to be concerned about? We have to be concerned about this local church. We have to be concerned that this church is following the principles of what is required of us. You could ask me an opinion of whatever the latest scandal is. And I could give you my opinion of what the latest scandal is. And I could pass judgment on that scandal. I could tell you, here's what that church needs to do, or here's what that church doesn't need to do. And yes, it would be within the body. Paul's going, he's going even outside of that. He said, look, we're not judging those that are outside the church. We're judging those that are within. That the purity of the church would be protected. And he says, do not ye judge them that are within. It's hypothetical. He said, don't you know, this is what we're supposed to do. But them that are without God judges... But them that are without God, judges, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. The chapter ends. 
do you notice there's not a whole lot of hearings and a whole lot of discussions and a whole lot of what's this person going to do, what's this person going to do? He's telling them you should deal with this swiftly. It's commonly reported among all of you. You all know it's happening. So deal with it. Excommunicate. Now, we have the obligation to try to reconcile true brothers and sisters in Christ. No doubt about it. But if this person refuses, this person is to be excommunicated, removed from the church, he doesn't say, you know, get a gauge for their feelings and let's see how they handle it. He says, this should go. Now, again, this is this particular church and that's that particular sin. Again, what would it be for us? That's what we as a church have to be sure that we understand that the purest churches under heaven are subject to these things. Now, the purest church under heaven does not mean, and let's get this straight, a pure church, even in this age, does not mean a perfect church. Spurgeon himself said, if you find a perfect church, you've all heard this, and I'm paraphrasing, you go ahead and go to that church, and now it's imperfect. Right? It, that's the reality. If, if there are people who all their life say, I'm looking for the perfect church, that's why they never find a church. Because you're not going to find it. You are never going to find a church that is perfect. This one is not perfect. We've never once said this church is perfect. We're far from perfect. There are no such things as a perfect church. So who were these pure churches? Were they actually talking about perfect churches? No, if the confession writers were talking about perfect churches, then they would have said perfect, and the Bible would say, go find a perfect church. They do not exist. So what is supposed to be happening is that we are supposed to, be, supposed to be progressively being sanctified. We are being conformed, transformed more into the image of Christ day after day, month after month, year after year. We're supposed to be getting more like Christ, not less like him. Churches are subject to error. By mixture, the confession writers mean someone who is actually unconverted can be found within a true church. That's what they meant by mixture. Sub, someone unregenerate mixing with the regenerate. Now again, he's not talking about do not invite unbelievers into your church services. Please don't get that idea and say, oh, we're a church that doesn't want anybody who's unregenerate. No, I want you to invite every unregenerated person you know. And if we have to park them across the street, we'll park them across the street. But I want you to invite as many as we can squeeze in here. But he's saying they should not be mixed on the church rolls. Folks, the first question we're going to ask you when a person presents for membership, we're going to talk about your conversion. <laughs> That's the first thing we're going to talk about. You'd think that'd be the first thing people ask. Over the last few weeks, I've been looking at some churches actually publish what they ask prospective members. And I'm sitting there saying, there's 10 questions and not one of those questions did you ask about their conversion. One of the first questions was, what kind of special talents do you have? I'm like, are you out of your mind? Since when did we start looking for talent? When did we put out a talent search? What are you particularly gifted at? Not one question about their conversion. And people wonder, how did, how did we end up with unregenerate church members? Because you're not screening them. You're just assuming it's okay. You look like a good fella. You look like a good lady. You talk right. You act right. 
But do you have a real conversion testimony? Have you truly been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ? Now again, does that mean they're going to be a perfect church member? Absolutely not. But by mixture, the confession writers meant someone who was actually unconverted. Now was the man in 1 Corinthians 5 an unregenerate church member? I take that position. We can argue about it if you want. Some people argue and say, no, he was a regenerate person who got back in the flesh. I take the position that he was never regenerated to begin with. Does it mean that a regenerate person couldn't commit this crime, this sin? Yeah, he could. But I tend to take that position. Again, you can disagree with that. That's, that's my opinion on that. So the confession writers meant mixture is those unconverted found within a true church. It means the true, that church is preaching true doctrine. It's standing upon that which is biblical. But also, even true and genuine churches can be mistaken in matters of doctrine and practice. Here's another one of those hot-button issues that the churches are all fighting about. They're fighting about practice. They're fighting about this is right how to practice, this is wrong how to practice. You can get that wrong, right? And I still think when we all get to glory, I still think we will have missed a lot of what we were supposed to be doing and how we were supposed to be doing in practice. We, we try to follow the regulative principle of worship in our Reformed Baptist churches, which means we try to follow doing only what the Bible says we are supposed to do. That's why we don't have a lot of bells and whistles. That's why we don't have a lot of entertaining things. We're trying to follow the principle of worship in Scripture. Now, you don't have to agree with that completely. Like, that's not something we're going to sit and say, you have to agree to this. But people say, why do you do it so simple? Why do you do the things that you do? That's exactly why. We're trying to stay within the boundaries of what Scripture says to do. So what does the Scripture say? We pray, we sing, we read the Scriptures, and we preach the Word. That's, that's the basic of a, of a corporate worship. Outside the church, church walls, of course, we've had discipleship and should be spreading the gospel. We should be preaching to our neighbors, preaching to friends. We should be doing everything we can. But that's why we do what we do when we gather together. So it is possible that even the purest churches might even have some disagreements on doctrine. One of the great hot-button issues right now is the end times. It always has been. People are absolutely fascinated to the point where you're driving yourself crazy trying to figure out how it's all going to finish. And people are looking and they're, they're snubbing their nose at other people that says, wait a minute, you're pre-mill, you're pre-trib, you're amillennial, you're post, you're... Mi-. Look, here's what I know. Jesus Christ is coming again and that's who I'm looking for. Amen. That's... That's what I'm looking for. Now, I have, I have my opinions, and we have some things when we get to eschatology of how I, I believe that. But could, is it possible that I could be wrong? Yes. If I'm looking for Jesus, if I'm looking for Him, a truly redeemed, blood-bought child of God, if I'm truly looking for Him, and it turns out that I am going through the tribulation now or I will go through the tribulation and ultimately I'm going to see Jesus, does it really matter? Ultimately, I'm looking for Him. Ultimately, there are doctrines that are going to vary from churches to churches. You could go find another Reformed Baptist church and they might have a difference of opinion on some of these things. Again, it doesn't mean that one over there is corrupt. It doesn't mean that one over there, oh, they're going down the wrong path. 
These are not the doctrines, we're not talking specifically about the doctrines of salvation, we're not talking about salvation by works, but there are churches that do things differently. Who would be churches that we would fellowship with? Right, and as most of you are finding out, it's kind of hard to find a lot of Reformed Baptist churches anywhere near us. It's hard to find. We're praying that that changes. So the reality is, and it has been said, the Reformed church is always reforming. Now that doesn't mean that it, it's, it's not wasn't right. It just means we're always to be checking and we're always to be examining to be sure that we're doing things properly. To be a disciple of Christ means to follow Christ. As the disciples followed Christ, they moved with Him, they changed with Him, they grew with Him, they matured with Him. We should always be willing to measure what we believe, when we believe it, how we believe it, and practice it by Scripture. Find out what the Scripture says, and then try to align ourselves to the Scripture. Again, ultimately, we're not trying to align ourselves to the confession. We're aligning ourselves to the Scripture, and again, where the Scripture and the confession disagree, we are always going to take the Scripture position. Always. But primarily, when someone wants to know, you got any information about your church? I said this last week, we hand them a confession of faith. Because it spells pretty much everything about us out. So we're always measuring ourselves. We're always examining. We're always trying to be more consistent to the word. Over the course of a congregation, there are seasons of growth and there are seasons of struggle. Some of you, over the last seven or eight years, seven years, you have seen both sides of this. You have seen a real struggle. When my family came here, there was no sense of direction. There just wasn't. I couldn't get my hands on what we were doing. I couldn't get my hands on what we believed. I couldn't grasp it. And it was a struggle for year after year after year. People came, people went. It was a constant turnover. We couldn't identify because we didn't know where we stood. And whatever season we're going through right now, which this is a beautiful thing, and those of you that are, have been around a while, what you're seeing happening on Wednesday nights is mind-blowing. On Wednesday nights even, what's happening on Sundays is mind-blowing. But do not rest in this. Do not think, oh, it's, just, it's always going to be like this. There are seasons of struggle and there are seasons of triumph. And every single season we're supposed to be examining ourselves and say, are we truly sticking by the Scriptures? What God provides and what God builds, we praise Him for it. But churches are not static. They're constantly moving. They're constantly changing. We're supposed to be continually growing. You should be more hungry for the Word today than you were last Sunday. You should be more hungry for the Word than you were Wednesday. You should be continually saying, I want to grow. I want to be more like God. I want to be more like my Savior. What's happening? Because there's a constant war going on. There's a constant struggle between make, maintaining the purity of what God wants us to be and guarding against an impurity that could get in and take hold. Okay, that's why we're careful. I don't think you want us to be uncareful. I think you want us to say, we want to be concerned and say, look, we praise God for what He's doing, but we also want to understand 
that the sad fact of the matter is churches can and do sin. Okay, we sit back sometimes and we are just alarmed that we hear something goes on in another church and we say, how did that happen in that church? Like that could never happen here. We hear about scandalous sins in other churches and we say, boy, I tell you what, that pastor over there, he just really mishandled this. He's not doing right. He's not. Half the time, we don't even know the facts. We don't really know what's going on. And, and by the way, if you're getting all your facts from social media, there's your problem. There's your problem. Everybody becomes an expert in everything. We become, we become medical professionals, right? How many of you are now medical professionals over the last two years? I know I am. Because social media tells me that. Folks, be very careful. We think that those things can't happen to us. That we somehow are shielded from that. The sad fact of the matter is, churches as a whole can sin. The 1 Corinthians 5 example here. An entire church can fall prey to that. The church in Corinth, there's no question about it. If you read through the first and second epistles of the church of the Corinthians, it was riddled with sin and error, but there was also truth being proclaimed. In Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, do you realize that five of the seven churches that are mentioned in Asia, which received letters from the Lord Himself, are standing in need of a stern rebuke and a warning. Ephesus is accused of backsliding and losing its first love. Pergamos is a compromising church. Thyatira is polluted. Sardis is dying. Laodicea is lukewarm in its pride and self-deception. Only Smyrna and Philadelphia are commended without a rebuke. Five out of the seven churches are told, you have problems. So to sit here in some kind of arrogant pride to think, we don't have any problems. Now, we want to be like the church at Smyrna. We want to be like the church at Philadelphia. I remember years ago, I preached, I preached on the seven churches. And I remember distinctly standing up here and telling us, we want to be a Philadelphia church. We want to be like them. They were small but mighty, right? Some of you remember this. Some of you won't remember it. But this was the church we wanted to pattern. They apparently are the ones that didn't lose their first love. They, they had it right. But it's sobering to think that five of those seven churches were in, stood in need of a rebuke. Now, these are things that make us, they sober us, they humble us. But it ought to humble us in the, rea- the way that we assess ourselves. We are far too easy on ourselves. The easiest critic of self is you and me. I personally will ignore, I'll justify, I will do lots of things to say, I'm right, they're wrong. We're all that way. We are, we are our best critic. I am right to respond the way I respond. I am right to feel the way I feel. The reality here is, is that these sobering thoughts here, we need to hum- be humble in our assessment Be gracious, not only in our assessment of ourselves, but gracious in our view of others. Regardless of how pure we think we ourselves are, we are still subject to error. I don't care what kind of a theologian you think you are. 
I, I, I'm, I saw two posts this week from guys that are like theologians in my mind who were promoting something. I said, if you're a theologian and you just promoted that, that's not good theology. Now, I can be ungracious and I can look at that and say, boy, that church must just be an absolute mess over there because they're doing that. They must be really in a mess. Well, I'm glad I'd be part of a church. We all have it right, right? We don't have any of those. We don't have any issues. We don't have any problems. No, we are still subject to that. So this war is constant. The fact that mixture and error is possible and there is this potential for unregenerate membership, it makes an unpopular subject necessary. It's a subject called church discipline. Church discipline has fallen almost totally out of favor. It's, it's almost gone. And it's gone because of feelings. It's gone because of bad reviews on Google. It's gone because of bad reviews on Facebook. It's gone because we're afraid that someone that we needed to deal with, who would not be dealt with, needed to be excommunicated, need to be removed, we're afraid they're going to say something bad about our church, and then that's going to affect the church membership, then people are going to get mad and leave. Look, there's always going to be that problem. The church has to deal with issues. It has to. And not every issue is easy. And not every issue is an open and shut. But the reality is, is like the example in 1 Corinthians 5. This was something that was so known that there was no doubt about it. The fact that this mixture and error can occur makes church discipline a necessity. The second phrase, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Sometimes mixture and error cannot be dealt with. And sometimes those churches are removed for the benefit of the body and the glory of Christ. As I mentioned to you, to just paint it with a brush that says, isn't it sad that every church and how many churches in America closed? Some of them needed to close. They said, oh, but I remember, my, I remember my grandparents. That church was solid. Have you been there in 20, 30 years? I'm finding things out about my own life, about my own background. History has a very funny way of confusing facts with emotions and feelings. Because I remember growing up in the churches I grew up in, those churches were perfect. I mean, they couldn't do wrong. The people were perfect. The pastor was perfect. My family was perfect. And now you kind of start thinking, I said, wait a minute. I learned certain things and I just make an assumption that, oh, they're always standing for the truth. The reality is sometimes the lampstand has to be removed. Sometimes the glory of Christ is not being upheld. Sometimes God's word is being corrupted and polluted. And God says, I'll just remove that lampstand. I'll remove it. We need to be warned that churches can become so degenerate as to become no longer churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Now, lest we think that the confession writers were not following Scripture here, look at Revelation 2, and this is the exact language that they used. Now, in the, the first part of, of uh, chapter 2 of Revelation... It says, Under the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. 
I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. But this thou hast that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write these things, saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Chapter 3, again, we're not expounding all of these. I just want you to see that this is where these principles are coming from. Chapter 3 begins by making mention of the church at Sardis, okay? And then he, he moves into the church in Philadelphia in verse 7, and to the, chain, the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write these things, saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works, behold, I have set, thee, set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name." Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I love thee. Now, what's interesting is verse 9 says, I will make them. I will make them the synagogue of Satan. But I will eventually make them bow down and honor them as those that are loved by Christ. The warning is very clear that how grievous it would be to see a church that once stood for sound doctrine, once was sound in how it handled, and yet now it has been knocked off course by the modern culture and the fads and the philosophies of the world. Whatever you want your church to be, there's a church conference for it. Whatever you want. It's flavor of the month. Entertain us. Give us a reason. Give us incentive. Don't preach too hard. Tickle the ears. Make it so that we just feel good about it. Again, all these things are things that can begin that process. Nevertheless, Christ always has had and ever shall have a kingdom in this world. Christ, to the very end, will always have a remnant of people who believe in him and make profession of his name. Now again, we've been dealing with in these first three paragraphs the universal church in the terms of salvation and those who believe in him and make profession on his name. The universality is seen in reference to all of time when he says always has and ever shall have. This church has not always been. There was a point in time when it started and you can, you, you can even look at the history. This church has, from how it got here, is astounding it's it's had paths it's not had a direct path but it's not always been at some point in history people got together and planted a church and this is still the remnant of what's carrying on with some things that have changed over the years but the universal church where there will always be those who were saved those who were always in the kingdom there will always be a kingdom in this world 
One of the great examples of sometimes we feel like Elisha in 1 Kings 19, remember, who thought he was the only one and being faithful to the Lord, and yet he's reminded that there were 7,000 who had not bowed the knees to Baal. We get that idea, look, we're the only good church, we're the only true church, we're the only one standing, and we start proclaiming that we're the only pure church anywhere in Ohio. There we're it. No, there are many, many people. There are remnants still standing for the truth. But he doesn't promise that that local church that's standing on Petrie Road will always be standing. He doesn't, we're not promised that. We're not promised that 50 years from now that this church will still be standing and there will still be people worshiping who remember the people who were here before. There's possible that between that time frame that this place so degenerates to the place where it closes and it's gone. We could come by here in a few years even and we could look at this property and there might be houses on this property and the church is gone. To think that we can just rest and just say, you know what, it's not going to happen to us. I feel sorry for those five out of the seven churches that the, the Lord had to deal with. I'm sorry he had to rebuke them. I'm glad he doesn't have to rebuke us. We should constantly be unaware of this and know that he always has a faithful witness of himself. The last phrase to the end thereof, of such as believe in him and make profession on his name. Christ always has this kingdom. It will continue to the end of this age. Christ promised in Matthew 16, 18, he will build his church. The gates of hell will not overpower it. Matthew 24, 14 says that the gospel will be preached throughout the world until the end of the age. The gospel is going to keep going forward. If the candlestick here gets snuffed out, the gospel doesn't stop because the church on Petrie Road ended. The gospel's still going to go. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of the Great Commission. I want, I want generations from now, if the Lord tarries coming again, I want generations from now who are the descendants and relatives of the people who call this church home still attending this place. That's what I want. I don't just want this to last for a few years. I don't, I, don't, I don't view this as something we just kind of look at and say, well, you know, this will work for now. No, look, this is something that ought to be such a part of our lives that ought to say, look, this is where God has placed us and this is where he's planted us and this is the part he's given us as our part of the responsibility. Now, again, we have people come and go. We have people that visit us. They visit us during the school year. They're not here in the summer. We love having them, right? We love having our Cedarville students here. We love having people call this church their church away from their homes. But I also know this, that every home they come from, they have church homes where they live, who they're a part of. And I want them to stand with the same kind of tenacity to say, look, I want the church that I'm a part of to always be a church that's pure. You know, it, it's, not just the, it's not just the pastors and elders that are supposed to be guarding for error. You know, this idea that says, look, the pastors and the elders are the gatekeepers. They're the ones responsibility for the doctrinal error and thing. Look, we're all supposed to be aware of this and we're supposed to be on guard for it. Right? And, and, and it's, it's so important to know that even part of the Great Commission Jesus himself promised, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now again, we're not the disciples. Just like we're not, we're not David in the story of David and Goliath. There were things he said to the disciples 
There are things he was talking about that they were going to endure that aren't directly related to us, but the principles of what's going to happen, there's the promise that the church will always have a remnant. While we have no guarantee that our own local church will always continue, we do know that Christ's universal church will always visibly continue. How do we know the universal church exists? We see it in the presence of local churches. That's how we know there's a universal church is because there's local churches. If there's not a local church, we don't know that there's believers anywhere. That's how we know. No individual local church is justified in believing that no matter what it does, no matter what it says, no matter how it compromises, that it can expect that it will endure through the generations to the end of the age just because it exists today. We don't have that guarantee. You know, and we've all been there. I remember 20 years ago we did this, and 20 years ago we did that, and we were this and we were that. Fantastic. But where are we standing now? Here we stand. Right? This, this, right now is where we stand. Where do we stand in doctrine now? Where do we stand in belief now? Not what happened 20, 30 years ago. We have, we have churches that are resting on past success as the reason why God should let them continue to exist. And the reality is, is every generation needs to be looking and saying, are we following Jesus Christ in everything that we do? We can pray for the promises of this big word we use, perpetuity, God's eternal existence, that His continuance. We can pray that our local churches, this local church, is one of those churches that remains until the end, however it ends. And that we can actually labor to that end. Actually say, wait a minute. We're actually supposed to be laboring for the ministry. We're not just to come in and just take a place on Sunday, worship and then leave. Come in on Wednesday, then worship and leave. We are laboring for the church, not for me. Folks, and when we get this all right, and we get everything completely and perfectly in order the way we need to get it, where there's this plurality of elders which we're working towards, you are not doing this to please me or an elder board, right? It's not my approval that you need. We want God to be well-pleased with every one of us laboring where God has placed us. I do not look at myself as anywhere different than any person sitting in this congregation. We are all called to do something different. That's the way God made it. And the point is to simply say, okay, look, this is what I'm going to labor to do in our local church. This is what I'm going to labor to do. I'm going to labor not to gain points, not to gain rewards, not to gain, but to just simply say, look, this is a precious gift that God gives us for a local church. I spent many years not looking at the church as a gift. I looked at the church as drudgery. I got to go to church again. And folks, I would have told you at that time when I thought it was drudgery, I would have told you I was a saved person. And and I've told you this story. And the reason I was saved because my Bible said I was saved. 
At seven years old, someone wrote it in there, said, he was saved on this day. I have since said, no, I was not. I spent most of my kid lives in school, even maybe up to college, before I even started having a clue about what true repentance was, what true faith in Christ was. And I was a church kid. Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, every church activity, I was there. And yet, I did not have a clear understanding of what repentance and full belief in Christ alone really was. So to think that you cannot have unregenerate church members and think that can never happen to our church, folks, think again. Think again. Because it can't happen. Now I know the seriousness of this, the seriousness of this this morning is one of those things that, look, it, it challenges us all. We do have the promises that Christ will endure, His people will endure and overcome. And we pray that God would continue to build His church. We pray that the Lord would continue to allow this church to exist. But we also know that we have to be on guard. We have to be on warning to be sure that we're doing what we need to do. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we thank You for this time. And Lord, I thank You for the seriousness of this matter. Lord, I realize that we have dealt this morning with thoughts and expressions that are not so popular with us. But Lord, I do pray that we would take heed what we've heard this morning. And that Lord, we would never take for granted that just because we exist today and just because we're gathering today and because we're seeing a mighty work of God, or even if we weren't seeing a work of God, that all is well and that we're not examining ourselves constantly. To not only be sure we're in the faith, but to also be sure that we are truly regenerate. We are truly believers. That we have truly come to that place in our life when we see the horrific picture that sin really is. That sin is not just making mistakes. It's not just doing that which is wrong. It is to violate a holy God's law. And sin is an abomination to you. Father, may we not be able to look at sin lightly. We may not be able to look at sin within ourselves and justify it or talk ourselves out of the seriousness of it. Lord, may we begin on an individual basis. May we examine ourselves and be gracious towards others. Lord, we all need to do that, to be more gracious. But Lord, we certainly pray that you would protect our church. And Lord, that we see your promises, we see the warnings, but we also know we all have a responsibility. And Father, I am thankful for everyone who attends this church, those who are members of this church. Lord, I pray that you would just continue to purify us, sanctify us through the Spirit, that we would be what we need to be. Lord, correct us where we're wrong. Correct us where we're uh, even uh, in our thinking. And Lord, may we truly be aligned with your word. Lord, we thank you for this time. And Lord, may Christ be magnified and glorified through it all. For it's in his precious name I do pray and ask these things. Amen. All right. Lord bless you. We'll see you here in just a few minutes for our worship service this morning.